Hi, and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. You can also follow my podcasts on YouTube. Just search Steve Wraith and click subscribe. Welcome along to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast, and today's special guest is Vinny Bradish. How are you, Vinny? I'm great, thanks, Steve. I'm great, man. How's yourself? Yeah, good. Yeah, thanks for joining us, mate. Um, obviously, I've read a lot about you know your, your life and the situations that you found yourself in. Um, first of all, where were you? Where were you born and where were you brought up, mate? Um, I was born in Wilsdon, Northwest London, and uh, that's where I was brought up. I was brought up. We was um, we used to live in a, on a council estate. Uh, was, um, I had there was nine other brothers and sisters, five brothers and three sisters. We're all second generation Irish. And um, that's it. We were brought up there in Wilsdon, and uh, then we just lived around Wilsdon most of our life, you know. And then, um, and now I've moved out to uh, Surrey now. Was it a was it a happy childhood? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was happy. Yeah, most of it, it was happy. Yeah, uh, we used to have a good crack, just the same thing as most kids do, you know, just running around, getting up to mischief, doing penny for the guy, and and, and singing at people's doors at Christmas time and all that kind of stuff, and anything just to earn a few pe- a few. I would say a few quid, but any any a few coppers, you know. What was your mum? What, what was your mum and dad like? What what you know? What what jobs were they doing? Well, my dad worked as a painter and decorator, and he worked in a few factories, like uh, the Rolls Royce factory. I don't know what he was doing there, and uh, probably nicking the motors. I don't know, but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and my and my mum just worked as um as a, a housewife and a and a cleaner. You know, like um, doing little cleaning jobs to make a few extra quid, and that was it. You know. So there was money coming into the house. Was it? You know, was your was your dad a disciplinarian? Was he was he somebody who was quite strict if you got into trouble? No, he wasn't really very strict. But yeah, we didn't really want to. You didn't. You didn't want to bring the uh, the to the police to the door, but sometimes it was inevitable. You know, because as a young as youngsters, you ended up getting nicked. I didn't start getting nicked until I was about. 17 or 18 and so uh, the younger childhood and all that was um was no problem and yeah but my dad wasn't a very strict disciplinarian and um sometimes he would just have a few drinks on a friday or saturday night you would see him staggering up the road and we would be looking out the window like my mum would say oh have a look see if he's coming and we'd say yeah ma'am here he comes he's staggering up the road so that's the sign that he's drunk you know so that means all get we all got to get out of it get out of the front room and get in hiding in the bedroom and and then he would come in and start effing and blinding and singing Irish rebel songs and all the rest of it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that was it. And the Irish music would be blasting and like, and, and that's how he was brought up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a, it sounds like a happy enough childhood, you know? And, and, and a lot of these times when I interview former criminals, you tend to find that there's been a bit of trauma there. There's been, you know, there's been a tough upbringing. But, you know, it sounds like, a, it just sounds like an average childhood, you know what I mean? Like, but... Sisters and a mum and dad who were both working hard to try and make ends meet and put food on the table. What was it like going to school? Then I mean, was you know, were you, were you a scholar? Were you somebody who enjoyed school, or were you were you like me who didn't really like it very much? I didn't stand. I couldn't stand it. I remember it still. I was. I think that traumatized me even going into there. To me, that was like a prison. You know, mm. from when I was a kid, I couldn't stand it. And it's like um, I don't know the amount of times that I've tried to remember what did I learn at school. And all I can remember learning, all I can remember is writing lines where they were saying, I must do this, I must do that, I must do this, I must follow the orders, blah, 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 or whatever. Because I, 
and uh, it just seemed to me I couldn't, I couldn't never keep up with what was going on in the class. It, whether, it's, whether I was a bit too slow or what, or the, or, or the teachers weren't explaining it properly or whatever, and and I couldn't keep up with them. And so most of the time I'd be going from one lesson to the next, and it's just like I was just—it was just like um. I must have became invisible. It was like I made myself invisible. I wanted to make myself invisible to the teachers because I thought, I haven't done fuck all. And I thought, I ain't got a clue what they're on about. So I thought, it's best if I just keep in the background and um and try and blend in. And hopefully they won't ask me if I've done any work and all that. Because they came over. I used to I used to like writing. I found, I discovered I like I liked writing. Mm. And uh, and now as I'm older, I like reading books and uh, and stuff. But as a kid uh, in school, I, I can't remember learning anything. And uh I did take some exams when I was leaving secondary school, but I never went back for the results and I didn't expect anything decent from them because I never done any homework. If it, any homework was ever set for me, um, like, as soon as I left the school, that was it. The books were gone back in the bag or whatever. And I, and, uh, and I would dump them wherever I did. And, um, and I, and I never opened them again until I came back into the class the next day or a few days later. And, that, and so, Maybe if uh, if I'd have, if I'd have listened or I was able to listen to the teachers, but I didn't have a clue basically what they was on about. And even when I was in prison years ago, and like I was sitting in um, do, do, I was doing my GCSEs, and I was in Whitemore High Security, Nick, and and uh, I remember sitting down doing history, and the teacher waffled on for about ten minutes, and then she goes, "Is there anyone in here that doesn't understand any of that?" And I thought, well, I'm not going to be like I was when I was a kid. And so I looked around, no one else was saying anything. I goes, yeah, me. I goes, I, I, goes, I goes, I don't understand that, miss. She goes, well, don't you understand? I goes, anything that you're talking about. I goes, I haven't got a clue what you're on about. Everyone was roaring the head off in the class, you know. <laughs> anyway, it was, a, it, it was a good crack. But I thought, I thought, there we go again. Look, because I don't know whether they've been speaking for too long. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. I didn't have any understanding of the history and all this. If, if I'd have been studying the history for one year or two years or something, and then they're talking about something, then I know what they're talking about. Then it would have gone in, but there was no, there was no pigeonhole in my head for all this new information to go in. So I couldn't, I couldn't follow what they was on about. And so, so I just found it hard with all the schoolwork, you know. And and then when I was old enough, I would just bunk schooled, and um, and that was it. Yeah, I mean that that's that's part and parcel of I suppose of you know you either like school or you don't like school. It's one of them things. I, I you know I'm, I'm, I was in a similar position. I, I you know I didn't play through, and but um, I know a lot of people who did. And uh, you know I, I just remember my GCSE sitting looking out the window. Everybody else was scribbling away. I think I got a percentage on most of mine for just writing my name and writing me writing the date of the, the exam, and that was it. You know I left school with. A couple of GCSEs, but um, yeah. we're not all born to be scholars. Do you know what I mean? That's that's the thing. Yeah. Um, talk, 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 talking of which, like when I years later now, when I was an adult and I was doing a bit of bird for that for these armed robberies and that, um, I started I started reading books and doing all this kind of stuff, and I I started doing my GCSEs yeah. and I passed my English and maths, and I was I just felt delighted when I when I done it, and I thought this is what was missing for me. I thought. I thought I'm missing an education, and and so then I started reading more books, and and by the time I got out, and Nick, I was reading quite a bit of personal development books with Anthony Robbins, and um, and books on neurolinguistic programming, which I was interested in, and which I still am interested in, and um, that's all about communication and and how we communicate to ourselves and with others, and um, and so uh, but I got into that, and even now I've just started doing a degree in criminology and um, and psychology. 
because psychology is one of my favourite subjects as well. So I discovered. It's amazing how many people come, come back to education later in life. I went back and did a, a performing arts degree uh, when I was, oh, what, 37? Because my, my dream was always to be an actor when I was a kid. And I went back and did a performing arts degree at 37 and graduated when I was 40. So I'm 48 now, being a professional actor for eight years. And it's, um, it's the best thing I did. But, you know, I was, when I was younger, it just never, it was something that, that passed us by. So uh, we can all, we can all yeah. improve ourselves as we get older. Getting back to, getting back to the younger days then, what was your first bit of, your first bit of, you know, crime? You know, was it shoplifting? Was it, you know, what, you know, what, what did you get into at a young age? I got into I got into shoplifting even on the way back home from school. Like, if I didn't have any money, which uh, which which was the usual story, I didn't have any money, and so I used to see my mates, my friends, they're going into the shop and they're buying stuff on the way home from school, and I never had no money to buy anything. I thought this is just fucking ridiculous. How come I've never got any money? And I thought, and um, so next thing, so I would go in the shop when they're going in there buying all their stuff, and I would just stuff my pockets full of all the sweets, you know. And, and that was it, and so and then then I'd be doing even then I started getting into shoplifting and breaking into shops and and even I would creep around the back of shops even at, or for example at night time smash the window and I'd have a stick with a hook on the end of it with or with nails and I'd be pulling clothes over to the window and 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 all this kind of stuff you know so I'd be doing burglaries like that and breaking into factories and anything anything where I where I found I could get some money then then I then I had my eyes it's like I had my eyes open for it. All day, you know, that's, that was like a job for me. Did you feel? It was, bit, it, did you feel a bit guilty, you know, at that time, or were you? Did Did you not feel any guilt at all? No, I never felt no guilt at all. The way I looked at it, I said, "They've got, they've got something that that I haven't got," and I thought, and they've got plenty of it, and I thought, so they're not going to miss a bit of it. And I felt the same way about all the banks. Mm, yeah, that's how I felt. Yeah, that's how I felt about it, you know. So. Wasn't doing any harm. Like if you, if I was grabbing a handful of sweets out of a shop, or breaking into a warehouse, and they, and uh, and uh, the way I looked at it, I said, "Well, I just thought they've got pl they've got plenty. They ain't going to miss none of it." And so, wasn't doing any physical harm to anyone, and that was it. So I wasn't concerned. You talk about physical harm. I mean, were we ever involved in violence at a young age? Were you, you know, sometimes at school you have to you have to fight. You, you know, you you end up in fights. Were you ever in that kind of situation? I got into a couple of fights at school, and um, or uh, growing up, just a few, just a few fights. I don't, I'm not really into violence, and I, um, I don't, I'm not really a violent person. And so, um, but I got into a few fights, and uh, and it was, it was, I suppose, it was a bit of a crack at the time, and um, and then yeah, I just forgot all about it, you know, just carried on with my life, and uh, and that was it, you know. Did you win the fights, Finn? Mostly, mostly we'd end, we'd end up rolling around on the floor, and people would break him up, and uh, and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, or he got me in a headlock, and I'm holding on to him, trying to squeeze the living daylights out of him, trying to kill him, or he's trying to kill me, one or the other. And uh, but I, I did get banged up for it once. I got banged up for a fight. In I got involved in a fight by uh, by accident. Um, a punch up started, and um, I was with a few people, and. Uh, uh, a fight started and um, a couple of the fellows from the opposing side, there was a few of us and a few of them, and a couple of them got stabbed and um, and I got found guilty of that, even though I, I never stabbed them. Uh, well, they weren't stabbed, they was, they was cut. But I got found guilty of that and I got sentenced to 18 months uh, for that, for a, a fray and malicious wounding and 
EPH I was charged with for that. And uh, and even when I got locked up for that, it was an annoyance, you know, because I thought to myself, fancy getting banged up for fighting. I thought, this is just fucking ridiculous. I used to say to myself, I thought, I'm in here, I was doing 18 months and I haven't even earned a penny out of it, you know, so that was the most annoying thing for me. Was that, and, uh, to, to... Was that the first time that you were arrested and, and convicted? No, I had I'd done a few sentences before then. Um, before that, I'd been, I had done a detention centre. I got detention centre for like, I think it was for theft and assault and um, a couple of other minor offences. I got three months detention centre for that. And then um, I done a, I got a borstal training. <clears throat> um, that was for, I think, for a burglary and an aggravated burglary or something like that. And um, uh, and that was it. Yeah. So I I done I done basically DC borstal then uh, for the uh, fray and malicious wounded. And I I got sentenced to prison. Mm. And um, that was when I was just turned twenty one. And nearly for a few years leading up to twenty one, uh, I was often on remand for three, four or five months of the year for, for piss arsing around and, uh, and getting myself nicked. Mm. And so uh, that was it, you know. Tell us, what, what, was it, what was your parents' reaction to that first time that you were, you were arrested? Their reaction? I can't really remember their, their reaction. I think so, some of the time my mum would come uh, with us to court and, um, and obviously she didn't like it that we were getting nicked. And, uh, but she, with nine kids... It's like it's like they can't control us. So, and so you're. Um, it's not like every. It's the whole family weren't getting into trouble. I used to. My older brother had been arrested a few times. My older sister had been arrested. A, my older two sisters had been arrested a couple of times, but then they grew out of it. You know, when they grew up a bit, and then um and then um, and my brother, my other brother Coleman, had passed away. Uh, God bless him. He uh, he ended up. Um, he was put into care. And so um, I think even even when he's put into care, maybe even though when you're talking about traumatising or things, you know, like things like that, when your brothers are getting arrested or and the police are coming round your house, like because when my dad was coming home drunk, sometimes he'd start trouble on my mum and he'd be shouting and screaming, and the neighbours somehow would call the police, and um, and they would turn up at the door and they were trying to get my dad out of the flat, and uh, but because like, they couldn't come in at the time now and I remember they'd be saying get him out get him out of the get him to cross over the threshold of the front door and all that kind of stuff so maybe that stuff traumatizes us as kids and you're seeing your uh, your brother getting locked up my older brother got locked up and then your, my my other older brother like Coleman like I just said he, he got put into care care homes and all that just for not going to school and uh, I remember thinking how unjust that was when I was a kid and even as an adult, I used to, it still annoys me that just for not going to school, you could get locked up in a care home and all that, and you haven't broken any, you haven't, you haven't committed a criminal offence, really. And so, so whether that all effect makes you like a anti-authority and all that kind of stuff, mm. it's just like you're just thinking, it's, it's like it's just like you again. It's them. You're not. It's, it's like they're the. It's like they're, they're the enemy. You know. Yeah, it makes sense. What was it? What was it like going at the detention centre for the first time? And um, I'd heard about it. It was called a short shop shop back in the days. And I remember getting off of the van and there was a, there was one of the prison officers was there standing about 20 yards in front of me. And he was a big fat fella. And he said to me, you better run down to me as fast as you can. And if you, and, and if you don't run as fast as you can, can you're going to get a kick in the bollocks or something. And I thought, and I seen all the prisoners looking out the window over there. And I thought, 
I'm not running up as fast as I can to him making a fool of myself. You know what I mean? So I jogged up to him and he and he sent me back to the other to the other screw back at the other end or something. And and uh, the second time, anyhow, I livened up a bit and uh, and uh, I and I got in there and the DC. It wasn't too bad, you know. I think I was in there for about eight weeks. And that was a lot of uh, physical exercise. Every day you're, you're training really hard, you know. And um, and I liked all that. I liked all that. I thrived on it, you know. Because I had already been in the army, so I knew all about boxing blankets and going running and, and keeping fit and training and, and, and polishing my shoes and all the rest of it. And so I, I, I liked it. Yeah. Did he and, you know, sometimes, sometimes you meet some good mates in there and all that, and you're thinking... It's, it's a bit sad to even leave them, you know, but you've got to leave them. You're you're going out and uh, and you've got to carry on with your you're carrying on with your life. Yeah. And that was it. You, you keep your you kept your head down, but obviously if you were training and you were with pals, it, it just feels a little bit, I suppose, like a holiday had come to you. It, it, it is. You're, 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 you're working in it. They would have a boring boring jobs in there. That would be the worst of it. Like you'd be making like chain link fencing and you're rolling it onto a reel all day long or packing boxes of soap into boxes and all that mm. proper meaning like demeaning kind of jobs and and so um but you'd be glad to get back into the gym and, and go and running and all that because i liked keeping fit and and then and, and so so it was, it was it was good for me and so it, it didn't do it didn't do me no harm that the interesting thing that you said there was that you, you know what, when you stepped up and you ended up in Borstal for the, for the, the wounding uh, charge, that you were, you were disappointed and you, you were in there and you hadn't made any money from it. And was that, was that the, 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 the eureka moment for you when you realised that, you know, if, if you were going to be a criminal and you were going to get involved in crime, that you wanted to make sure you made some money out of it? Was that like the eureka moment for becoming a... Yeah, it, yeah it, it, it kind of was, yeah. Because... Um... I didn't. I thought, what a waste of time going to prison for just for getting involved in a fight, you know. Mm. I thought that, that is just a complete waste of time for me, and 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 I would hate to be um because like, I've never carried a weapon like a like a knife because I've always said to myself I, I wouldn't want to carry it because I know if I'm going out drinking and uh, you're in a pub and someone started on you or something like that and um and you got a knife and you God knows what you're going to do with it you'll probably end up pulling it out you could end up stabbing a person next thing you're doing a life sentence and so. For me, carrying a weapon is it's never, I don't use, I'm not interested in that. The only time I carried a weapon was like a firearm to, to rob banks. Yeah. Because that's what I'm going at. It was just about getting the money, you know? Yeah. Was it, what was your first robbery then? And, and just take us through it, you know, was, you know, how, how, you know, how much planning went into doing that first robbery? And, um, the planning, the planning, um, like it wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't take me too long to plan it. You know, like, because like um, I might spot. Uh, I I I spotted a place that I wanted to rob. Like um, oh, I I hadn't thought about robbing it first of all, but I I I would just, I would be just taking in all the banks that I see. Like and 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 I say if I seen a bank, I say oh that looks that looks like a nice one, and uh, but I would always suspecting that the police are following me, so I wouldn't just. I might just see it one day, and then a few days later, I'm, I'm I'm driving past, and I'm looking for, I'm checking out escape routes, and so because the robbing the bank was the easy part, but you got to make sure you get away with it, you know. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. That was that was like our kind of like our motto, so to speak, and um, and so I so, so you would put quite a bit of planning into it. 
So most most of the time, ninety nine percent of the time, you were putting planning to the to the robberies, like which way go this way, what would happen if they come that way, or what would you got to check out this way, check out that way, whatever you know, because you got you want to get out of there. Yeah. Was it? Did you did you have a card marker for many of these jobs? Somebody who would tip you off about you know potential you know opening times or whatever, or did you do the work yourself? Sit outside somewhere, watch people's menu, you know, watch people's routines, see what time places opened. Hmm. Is that is that what you would do? I would never take any work off of anyone. Yeah, because uh, I cause I wouldn't trust anyone to take any work off of them. Mm. And um, because you would never know whether you're going to be set up. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. so, um, so I, I would always look for the work myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you work obviously in a tight team. It's it's quite a rare event to see two brothers. You know what I mean? Obviously, yeah. yourself and Sean, um, you know, working together. How did that come about? I mean, I, I couldn't imagine you both just sitting there one day and saying, oh, "Do you fancy doing a robbery together?" Was that was it as simple as that, or did you just, or was Sean doing a robbery? You did a robbery, and then you realised that you were both at the same game. Well, um. There was a there was a few uh, a few mates of mine that were, when we used to drink in a pub together mm. in in Northwest London and um, and they was all robbing banks and so um, it was like uh, and every everyone in the pub knew that, that that's what was going on or like so um, and it was going on for so long yeah and so next thing I you just end up getting involved in it yourself you know and because like I, if I was doing some building work and I'd lose my job and uh, next thing your money's going down and you're saying fucking earlier like your money's gone down again and so and so your mates would be there in the pub they're not they're not stressed out they haven't they're not having to go to work they're not getting up at seven o'clock every morning or six o'clock and every other week they're down at the pub and they've got a bundle of money and them 50 pound notes and armani suits on or whatever and you're thinking what the fuck i must be doing something wrong i thought but even though before i even got into it i i did weigh up the odds and like I was thinking of getting into it uh, even long before I did, you know, and uh, but I knocked it. I didn't bother. I didn't bother getting into involved at that time. Yeah. And, uh, but in the end, in the end, I finally did, and um, and that was it. Once once I started, it's like there was no going back, and it's like um, you get you get you, because you get used to it, and it's like and because I was used to crime, it's not like I just turned to it all of a sudden, like I uh, started robbing banks. I turned to crime when I was a young kid. Like um, like a teenager or whatever, and so, mm. so uh, for robbing banks for me, it was just like um, it's just like, just one step after the next. It's like, it's like you're doing your, it's like you're going to school doing your GCSEs and then you're taking your exams. That's what the armed robbery is like for me. Like the armed robbery is the exam was your is your final exam to see if you're going to pass the test, and uh, and so you're you're doing it, you know, and you're you're, it's it's like you're. It's like a battle. It's, 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 it's like you're um, proving it to yourself as well. You know, it's like to prove to yourself that you've got the balls that you're gonna that you're that you're gonna go and do it, and, and that you're clever enough to do it and get away with it. And when you see that you are that you are able to do it, and you're doing it fairly confidently and 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 uh, with apparent ease, because I would say ease, because even though because. It takes skill to do it, I suppose, if you're going to be successful at it and to make sure you're getting away all the time. Because like I said earlier, there's, there's no point in doing it if you're going to get nicked because uh, otherwise it defeats the object, don't it? Was there an adrenaline rush and an excitement for you when you were doing these robberies? Sometimes, I, I, 
I, I, I, I think to myself, like, I, I'm not too sure whether I, I was even getting adrenaline from it. I don't, I don't know. You like, obviously, I, I just wanted the money, and I don't think I, the adrenaline. Maybe the adrenaline is there when you, when you're going there, going to a job. I, because it was a long time ago now as well. I, I can't really remember to be honest. But you're just like, um, yeah. I can't. I can't even remember getting adrenaline rush, even even on the way to a job. Like it's like you got you got a heightened sense of awareness, and you're looking out for the old bill all over all over the place, and like you're checking your mirrors here, there. Like one day, um, for example, um, me and Sean was out scouting about in the car, and we had, we had drove about an hour away from our house over in Surrey, and um, we drove about an hour away from the house. And next thing, um, we drove down this high street and we done a, we went round a roundabout at the end of the high street. We started coming back through the high street. And next thing, we seen a car coming towards us with two fellas in it. And um, next thing, my, my brother goes, he goes, them two fellas, he goes, that car was parked around the corner from your house this morning. So, uh, so I started looking at him in the mirror. I started watching them and I seen they'd done a, they done a, a right turn. So I could see, I knew what they were going to do. They were going to come flying back after us again. But what I done, I stung, I flung the car around and I went after them. And I done, I done the right turn. I went down the same road that they had just gone down. And when I turned into the road, they were just about to come back up towards me. And so they were just about to pull away from the curb. And they quickly, they let the car like kind of roll back into the curb. And so me and Sean drove past them and we were dead slow. And, that, and like, we was just as near as I am used to the um, screen at home, Steve. Like, that's how close we was to them. And, and we were just staring at them and, and, and they wouldn't look at us and they just looked straight ahead. And we, we goes, that is them, mate, 100%. And, but we were, we, were, we were surprised that day that, that they was on us because we had driven up some long roads and there was no sign of old Bill around us anywhere. And we seen them and, uh, and that was it. So when we seen them, because that's it, we we're off home, you know. Yeah, and so we yeah. and so we'd go off home, and we might go to the gym, or we would just um, we might go for a few pints and stay in the pub and go on a session for a couple of days or whatever, <clears throat> and uh, and that was it. Did you always did you always have like a getaway car and then a second vehicle? I mean, were you were you that were you that well organised, or did you just take a chance and use the one car? You know, what what how how was it for you lads when you were when you were doing these jobs? Sometimes you would have two cars. Sometimes you would just have one car. And even if you couldn't get a car, sometimes you might even use your own car. And because um, if you had to use your own car, obviously, it's just, of course, it's a stupid thing to do. But if we, we if we, if that's a, if that's how desperate we was at the time and we needed some money, then that's what we would do, you know. We and we would just make sure we would make sure the car's well away from the from the bank, a couple of hundred yards or whatever, down this road, down that road or whatever, and. And try you want to get into the car with no one looking at you. Yeah. Were you always masked up when you were going in, and were you you know what when you see you were on what what were you usually carrying? Yeah, we we masked up either bandanas or mostly bandanas and baseball caps or balaclavas, and um and uh, that's what that would be the main disguise you now and gloves. Yeah. Yeah. And, and armed. You... When I when I, when I when I got arrested and I went to trial and um for the robberies and I seen the prosecution's evidence they had about 200 photos 300 photos of robberies in progress in these banks and on every robbery that um the supergrass roberts every every photograph that he identified me on you couldn't tell whether the person was black white pink or blue because you couldn't see my skin 
you couldn't see my eyes because I, I always kept my head down and, um, and you couldn't see the color of my hands. And uh, Roberts was saying to the, to the prosecutor, yeah, he goes, that's Vincent Bradish. And the prosecutor goes, how do you know that? How can you be so sure? And they played a video and he goes, look at the way he walks. Look, he goes, and I haven't got a distinctive gait or anything like that. And, um, and they'll say, yeah, that's Vincent. And they'll say, well, how do you know it's Vincent? He goes, because he's with Sean. He's always with Sean. And I was in the dock and I say, this is complete fucking nonsense. This is, how has this case ever come to court? I said, I goes, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean. And, uh, and that was the evidence that were, every, every photo that they used of me in the, in the, in the, from the robberies, that's how Roberts identified me, just like that. And, uh, and the judge, when he done his summing up, he goes, members of the jury, he goes, have a look at the photographs and see if they look like the men in the dock. And then, and then you, and then basically you, and I was like, how the fuck can he say, have a look at the photographs and see if they look like the men in the dock. The men in the photographs, every time it was me, I was, I had my face covered up. So he, he should never have been even allowed to say that. And so that was one of the reasons why I was appealing for years and I, and I wouldn't admit it. <clears throat> I finally admitted it when I, um, after I got out, after I'd been out of jail for about three or four years, I admitted it. I mean, it's an amazing case, and anybody who's got the time should read up on this. And I mean, you know, I've, 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 you know, I've covered a lot of miscarriages of justice with, you know, with some of the books that I've written about criminals over the years. Um, some of the things that really stood out for me, and obviously the, you know, the the guy who turned Queen's evidence was obviously, um, you know, you know, as you, as you've already mentioned, uh, Stephen Roberts. Um, I mean, I read what you put up online when you when you put the statement up, Justice for Vincent and Sean Bradish. And it's, it's an amazing, it's well worth just Googling to read it. But some of the stuff that got that got away with in that court case was shocking. And, and the general public don't realise this kind of thing goes on. The prosecutor, for example, during his opening speech said that there was 14 handguns and 11 sawn-off shotguns that had been recovered. But there was no evidence of that at all, was there? And there was no evidence of that. There was evidence... They're saying all these firearms that was used in these robberies. They're saying that was the evidence. I said, yeah, but you can't. How can you say that they're? Um, they're I said, there's no. There's there's only they only had one firearm in our case. That's the sawn-off shotgun that my brother was arrested with. And he, when he was arrested with that, they put him on a separate trial before the trial that me and him had. That was called the RNIB trial, where he got arrested outside the RNIB. He was arrested with three, two or three of his mates, and they were convicted. And so he already doing a life sentence before he came on trial with me. And, and they brought that shotgun in that he was convicted of. And, um, and he goes, this is the shotgun. I goes, and I said to my barrister, how can they bring that shotgun in here? That's evidence from the other trial. Yeah. And, and um, because there was a few firearms have been recovered in that case, the judge in my case uh, had, had said, he goes, numerous firearms have been recovered in this case. And I shouted out in the court, well, where are they then? Because he, he shouldn't even be talking about them in this case. That was a completely different case. Mm. And it was, just, it was just one bit of, to me, and what I would say is one bit of corruption after the next in that case and crookedness. When my own legal team sold me down the river and helped get, get me convicted. And, um, and, and they made sure that Sean got convicted as well, you know. So they got the two of us convicted. And I complained about that uh, till the day I got out, you know. Two of the jury members as well had relatives in the police, didn't they? I think one of them was a member of the flying squad and the other had a, it was a copper in the city of London. And I think, the, I think you remember you saying in your statement that the jury foreman, he was at school with a junior barrister that your brother sacked. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah, he was, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, the, the fella, there was a youngish fella, and he, because um, you know, at the beginning of the trial, you're allowed to, uh, they're bringing the jury in and, and they ask them questions. The judge said, have any of you lot worked for the security services or banking industry, put your hands up. And there was about 20 of them, 30 of them at the time, and a load of them put their hands up. And I thought, Fuck. we thought we don't want them lot in here anyway, like they're working in the banking industry. And, um, and then there was one guy put his hand up and he goes, yeah, my uncle's in the flying squad. And we are arrested by the flying squad. So he goes, well, we don't want him in there. And the judge goes, well, do you see him often? He goes, no, I don't really see him much. And the judge goes, well, that's all right. You can stay where you are. And, 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 and like, we used to laugh about it over the years and just say it was just one thing, one calamity after the next. And, and like I said, and Peter Wilcock, my brother Sean's junior barrister, he, um, he was at school with the, I think it was the jury foreman. And we were saying we didn't want him there either because we goes for all we know, the jury former could have been bullying, what's his name, Peter Wilcock, or he could have been his boyfriend for all we know and they could have separated and he's got the hump against him or something. Because, yeah. but, but they took no notice of our objections and, uh, and they went ahead with the trial. And um, the, one, the other one, I can't remember about the City of London policeman. I can't remember whether that's true or... Yeah, or, I mean... Just... I just can't remember. If that's what I said at the time, that was definitely the case because because yeah. during the case I was sitting there, I was writing down everything that was going on in the case because I knew that there was something amiss, and like because we had been told like all the time while we was on remand that we're going to get answers to all our questions when we get to the court, and when we got to the court, our barristers wasn't asking the questions that we wanted them to. So when we started pulling them about it and said, "Why ain't you saying anything?" It goes well. We can't ask these questions it goes because of the uh, because of um because of the police and crime and evidence act or whatever it was uh, you're not allowed to ask these type of questions because well why didn't you tell us that at the beginning and we would have got another solicitor that, that instead of you bullshitting us all the way through because we was on remand for a year in belmarsh and um and we would have got a new solicitor on the case so they bullshitted us while we was on remand, because to, to, they didn't want us to, to get a new solicitors on board and, and sack them lot. That was uh, Edward Fale, Bradshaw and Watson from down at Commercial Road in East London. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, uh, and that, that was, that's what they'd done to us. And so, so we were, obviously we was annoyed about that. And then we, uh, but the case was just one funny thing or one mad thing after the next, like how we had the Italian representing us at appeal, Giovanni Di Stefano from Italy. He was um he was a convicted con man and he had served five years in prison, and um and then the next thing, but I met him in the legal room in Belmarsh, and so he took our case on, and as soon as he took the case on, uh, they put me in the high secure unit, um and and made me a cat A, and then they moved Sean out of the prison and put him in Whitemore, mm -hmm. and so uh, I was asking why am I in here in the unit? I goes most people come into the unit before the trial. I goes I've just been convicted and sentenced, and now you're putting me in here. I said what for? He goes, well, you're banned from the seeing Giovanni de Stefano. We're not letting him into the prison anymore. He's not a solicitor or a barrister. I goes, well, I goes, if that's the case, he's took my case on. And I goes, I don't care. I goes, that's who I want. I goes, I don't want to see another solicitor as long as I live, like the English one. Mm -hmm. I goes, and, um, and so that was it. And so um, they banned Giovanni from the thing. But what it was, Giovanni was, um, he called himself an avocato, like an uh, Italian uh, barrister. But well, I don't, I don't think he's got any um, qualifications in that in that field. But he managed to um, get a lot of. Um, he wanted a, He managed to get a lot of high 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 profile cases, and yeah. that's what he was after to, to give him the publicity. And um, when he's got the publicity, then any any of the criminals 
any gangsters or whatever, if they've got a load of money or people that's doing a life sentence and they've got a lot of money, and Giovanni's taking their case on, he's got a... You know, he would be the man for people to go to, you know, because he's saying, look, I'm representing this notorious criminal. I'm, rep I'm representing that notorious criminal. And so by him doing that and taking on high-profile cases, it builds up a bit of a... It builds up a bit of a... A thing for him, I, I can't think of the right word at the moment. You know, like it just builds up, it builds up his profile. It gives him like it, it, it basically helps him back his lie up, doesn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, he he had said he was going to do this and he was going to do that for us because my brother Sean ended up representing himself for about three days or four days, and um, he wanted he wanted Steve Roberts to be brought back into the case so Sean could cross examine him, but the judge wouldn't bring him back in. And, uh, but Roberts, had, Roberts uh, he hadn't answered none of the questions that we wanted. Like, during these interviews, the police are sitting there and they're saying, oh, Steve, I know this is a silly question to ask, but can you remember the number plate that that car was on from five years ago? He goes, how the fuck could I remember that? And then um, that was when the solicitor was with him in the interviews. So they get rid of the solicitor. So there's only the two coppers and Roberts. And next thing, um, all of a sudden, Roberts can remember everything from five years ago. What colour clothing he wore on every robbery, what colour clothing my brother wore, or what colour clothing I wore, uh, what car was used, how much money was stolen, the escape route that was taken. And, and, and he had every little detail about every single robbery. And we said, this, is, this, can't, be, this, can't, this can't be real. How the fuck is this going on? Mm. And he goes, and he's sitting in there, he's doing an interview. He's making 52 interviews without, uh, without a solicitor. And so that's what it was. And so they, they basically, uh, during the interviews, they spoon-feed him everything about the, uh, the robberies. And then, um, and then and they'll say, oh, Steve, can you tell us uh, which, uh, what colour clothing was you wearing on this certain robbery? And, uh, and he'll say, oh, um, oh, I was wearing a black jacket and blue jeans and white trainers. And they'll say, well, it's funny yeah, you mentioned that, Steve, because we've got a statement in. It says the robber wore black trainers, white, white trainers and a black jacket or whatever. And they'll say, have a look at them photos, Steve. Who's and he'll say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, he'll say, and we and me and Sean, like we was, we were sometimes we would just be cracking up laughing in the cell because yeah. we were saying the absurdity of it, and 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 we we said no one in a million years is going to believe this uh, when they get to court because you can see that Roberts has just spoon fed all the information, mm. and so we goes and 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 from, and from looking at his interviews and from what we had discovered written the, the unused paperwork, we seen that. Um, that the police had pulled him in in 1995, five years before we all got nicked. And uh, they pulled him in for uh, his car had been used on a robbery that morning, his friend's car, and he was still driving it that night. And uh, so the, because someone had spotted the number plate and give it to the police, when they seen him driving it that night, they, they tried to arrest him and they finally did. He pulled out a handgun and threatened to shoot them. And, um, and he got bailed for that a couple of days later. And, uh, and he ended up getting two years for threatening to kill the police. And, um, and uh, it was just, it was weird. from that case there in 1995, we said he must, he's definitely been working for them. But the prosecution in our case would never admit it. And so um, we couldn't prove it because they're not going to hand over the paperwork. We said we want his interviews from when he was arrested for that offence, for, for driving the car. And we, because, we, because we now knew from looking at the paperwork that they wasn't relying on that the number plate had been spotted. So he goes, well, that's, that's why, that was why they wanted to pull him up. Because he's in the getaway car. He's still got a handgun on him. He fits the description of the robber. Of course, they're going to question him about the robbery. But he only got, he only got banged up for threatening to kill the police and, and um, 
drunk driving or, or driving while disqualified or something. Mm. So that was, the, that was the crookedness that we was up against. And so when we see the crookedness that we was up against, we said, well, why should we put our hands up? We said, these are just as big as crooks as anyone. They're letting the robberies go on all over London is the way we've seen it. Because if the people that was in the Thomas Cooks and the banks and all that knew that, they knew that these lot were followers, they had us as suspects for years, then they would have arrested Then, then I, don't think they, um, I don't think the staff in these premises would have been too happy with the police. And, uh, and, and, that was, and that was the way it was, you know. And so that's how we've seen it. Because why should we plead guilty when all this corruption has been going on in the case? If they had came to us years before, we used to say, if they had come to us years before and said, and, and say they arrested me or Sean and they brought us in the station and said, look, look at all the evidence that we've got against you. If you don't turn it in, then, um, then you're going to get nicked for this, that and the other, blah, blah, blah. We would have probably knocked it on the head. And that would have been the end of it. But obviously, they're not going to do that because they want their they want to punish the person for for the crimes. Yeah, of course, they wouldn't allow Sean to cross-examine the police either, would they? In in, in the trial, I mean, you said he took over his own defence, and they, they wouldn't allow him to, to do what he was allowed. You know what he. Oh, they, let, they, they, they let they let him cross-examine uh, the t- detective chief inspector Bob Cummings. He was in charge of the case. And they let Sean uh, cross-examine him, but he, most of the time he wouldn't answer the questions. Right. And uh, right. When, when, he would, when Sean would ask him, he said, why ain't you answering the question? He would say, well, my Lord's made a ruling on this. I don't have to answer this question. And afterwards, me and Sean were saying, how did they know to make a ruling on the question before it had even been asked? <laughs> because this is just fucking ridiculous. It's one thing after the next. Yeah. And like, yeah. the copper wouldn't answer the questions, and then the judge would say to him, Judge Forrester, he would say, oh, um, have you got any more questions? Sean goes, well, he hasn't even answered the last one. What's the point in asking any more? Mm. And then when Sean was asking questions, the judge kept on interrupting him, trying to put Sean off track. And he was putting him off track uh, a lot of the time. But we had a lot of the questions written down that we wanted asked. Like we copied the, the prosecutor, how he ran the case. So we copied it and started doing the exact same thing. We went through the photos the same as he done. And we went through, we, Sean put the case towards the court the same way as the prosecutor did and and he was doing a good job of it and he raised plenty of doubt and uh, and brought the corruption and uh in the in the, put a spotlight on the corruption and all that kind of stuff and uh, and it was looking good for us until my qc michael gledill um opened his mouth and and uh, and started undoing all the good work that sean had done i mean and that was that you know it was it just seems as if you were always against a, a corrupt system and, and you were never gonna you were never going to get out of that, you know, out of that courtroom without a hefty sentence. What What was the sentences that you ended up with? I got. I was charged with two of. Uh, I had two offences: conspiracy to rob with firearms and a conspiracy to possess firearms. And I, I got found guilty of both, and I got twenty-two years on each on each thing to run concurrent. And Sean had a. I think he had four charges against him, like conspiracy to rob and. Uh, conspiracy to possess firearms, possession of firearms, or and uh, for each charge he got a life sentence. So he got four life sentences to go with a three that he was already doing from his first case, and I uh, and I got 22 years. So and his tariff was about 12 and a half years, 13 years, or something like that. And uh, and my tariff, uh, well, doing a fixed sentence, 22 years, I had to do about. Um, I got two years knocked off of that in 2007 because I kept on appealing against the sentence. 
trying to. They were saying, oh, you haven't got any grounds. And I said, of course I've got grounds. Look at this case. Look at that case. Blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I finally got two years knocked off, which, which wasn't even hardly worth them knocking off. And Because uh, you get two years knocked off, but it only gets a year out of your sentence. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And so I got it down to 20 years, and I've done about, uh, about 11 years in the end, 11 and a half years, I suppose. And, um, and that was it. And Sean got out just before me, because when I got released, first of all, after 10 years from open prison, I went out and um, I had a few drinks. And that was there. That was in one open prison. And so I was warned for that. And um, so that went against me. And then when I went down to another open, uh, open prison, Latchmere House in, um, in Richmond, London, I went into that one. And then I, when I went out on the town one night, it was just like a Christmas tree to me when I seen all the pubs all lit up and, and everyone's standing outside places going in. I thought, I'm, I'm just, I, just, I joined them, you know. And I can't remember how I got back to the prison steamed up. And, uh, and uh, a couple of days later, they kicked me out, and that was it. I went back inside closed conditions for about another year and a half. Mm. And after that, I said, I've had enough, you know, because I was sick to death of it. Which, I mean, were you category A for those first couple of years that you were in? And for the first five, and about five years, six years, I was cut A, yeah. How did and you then, um, it's, it's not. It's okay. It's not too bad. Mm. It's the same as being a bad. It's, it's the same as being a cat B, basically. When you're in a high security nick, because Whitemore's a high security nick, so they've got A's and B's in there, A's and B cats, because the B cats are usually doing long sentences, maybe ten years and upwards, mm. and um, and so you're you're basically just treated like a, an A cat and a B cat. You're in a high security nick. The A cats, obviously, you get searched more than the um, the B cat prisoners do, and. And if anyone you want to phone, you've got to put their telephone number in and, and get it cleared uh, by the um, by the prison service and that. But yeah, but it's not too bad. Yeah. Were you somebody who liked to get visits of, of friends and family or were you somebody who just, you were in prison, yeah. you did your time and that was it? No, I used to like it. My, my family used to come up at least once a month to see me. Mm. And um, my brother would bring my kids up, like bring my son up and, uh, and, and with Sean. Um, my brother would bring his kids up as well, you know, most of the time. My brother and si my brother or sister would bring them up. And so we had visits nearly every month, most of the time, through the sentence. Except for the last bit of the sentence that I'd done when I um, went back inside after being in an open nick for, for 18 months. I um, I didn't have no visits there. I was uh, I was sick of dragging my family up and down the country, you know. So uh, that was it. So I didn't bother with the visits. And I ended up working as a visit swordly, working in behind a canteen. And, uh, and so I would see the effects of uh, of the of the people's of the of the prisoners' families when they're coming up to visit them and all that. And when you see them all going home and they're all crying and and they're all hugging each other and all that. And then you see the prisoners sitting down there afterwards. And <clears throat> and a lot of them liked some some prisoners are feel, uh, they're down in the dumps after having a visit. Yeah. And, uh, and for for me it was there. I never felt like that. Like you'd see people when they'd come back on the wing and like. Some people they wouldn't want to talk to anyone or or something like that. And uh, but for me, any time I see my family, I was delighted, and I went back to the wing. I was and I was happy as could be. And um, I because I just, I just looked forward to the next one. I said you'd say like, all right, we'll see you in a, see you in a few weeks' time or whatever. And so it's not like they're dead. And so and so uh, and that and that was it. And so we were, I wasn't never down in the dumps after a visit. And and but when I seen it, the effect. On the, on the prisoners' families and all that, like I said, um, it, it kind of brought things more home to me. You know, I thought, 
what a fucking waste. I thought, all this is. And then I thought, I had a visit, so all wrong. How people are just sat down there like that and they got to sit down and, and they've, um, it's just, it's kind of, it's just kind of like inhuman, you know, like I thought, I don't like the way it was all run with all, with all the visits. You should, the way I seen it, like when I first went into Whitemore, you was able to, when your family came up to see you and the kids and that, you'd be able to get up and run around with them. Obviously you served your sentence and you came out. How have you turned your life around, Vinny? Well, when I got released um, seven years ago, I um, I was walking along Crookwood Broadway and I uh, I heard music coming from the pub, the Crown Moran Hotel, and they were playing like um, Cuban music. And uh, I went in and I uh, I found out what was going on, and um, and they were doing Cuban salsa, and that was it. Once I started doing that, I thought I can't believe this. I thought. For, for, for one thing, I said to myself, you know what, you wouldn't want to be back in prison knowing everyone is out dancing and enjoying themselves, you know. I thought, imagine getting sent back to prison, you'd be missing all this fun, you know. And so that was one, that was that was part and parcel of it that helped me to uh, change my life around because that gave me a social activity to do that didn't involve just going around sitting in the pub all, all evening and getting steamed up. Because I didn't want to be doing that. Because that's what caused a lot of the problems with me. Every time I was always getting nicked over the years, it was nearly all alcohol-related stuff. And so, uh, but even though now I still have a, I'll have, I'll have a few drinks now. But um, I don't drink nothing like what I did years ago. I used to just abuse it, you know. I'd be in the pub for hours or in the pub for two days, three days on two two-day benders and all that. And um, but so now I've just grown up more, and I, I've changed my life around. I got into the salsa. And from there, I started learning bachata and like kizomba music, like African music and uh, nice music. And so that gave me a social activity to do. And um, and plus, and, and, and so now I've been working most of the time since I've been out. And I changed my mind and then changed my life around. I started, I done a neuro-linguistic programming course with Richard Bandler, who's the co-founder of NLP. And, um, and, and, and just doing all little, all little bits and pieces. It's like, for me, it seems like it's been like a jigsaw puzzle, putting all the bits and pieces together. There's, there's not one thing has made me change, you know. Like, there's, all, there's, there's so many different things has happened. Like, sometime I might be doing something, I think this is another reason why this, this, this has helped me to stay out. That's helped me to stay out. This has helped me to stay out. For, you, for, for about two years when I got out of Nick, at least two years, I used to be thinking, every time I had a nice meal, I used to think, I, like, I used to say, because oh, you won't get this in the Nick. You wouldn't get this in the nick. You wouldn't get this in the nick. Every time you're doing something nice, you know, and you, like it reminds you of why you why it's good to be out, and um, and because because you can easily it's it's easy for people to just forget about the um, the the sad times in there, and you forget about it. You get tied up in in a, in all the problems that are out here, and 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 all that kind of stuff. And and next thing you could end up finding yourself doing the same old thing drinking and taking drugs or whatever and and next thing you're 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 on a downward slope again if you're mixing with the negative people it's helping you to they might be if you was like they would be trying to suggest that you do something stupid or whatever and um and so but i but i keep away from all my old associates i don't mix with none of none of none of them and um and uh, and I'm, I'm happy enough now like my son is now 22 years old and so and for me, uh, like, I wouldn't want to go back in and I missed enough of his life. I, he, I went away when he was about two. And so, um, 
and plus, so all that kind of stuff. The family helps keep me out from beer. To be here with the family, knowing that I can just pop down to see them whenever I want. Go and see my mum, who's 82 years old and all that. Like, if I went back into the nick, if I went in for a serious offence, then um, I'd come out, my mum would probably be gone, and uh, life moves on, you know. But even a few years ago, I, I ended up getting a load of parking fines, parking offences and all this, and uh, from about two or three hundred pounds worth of parking uh, offences, they all gathered up to about two thousand pounds or something, because I said I weren't going to pay them, because I thought it was all just so unjust. And um, but in the end, I said to myself, well, if you don't pay them, Vin, I go, you're just going to end up going into the nick and um, I'm going to come back out and I'm going to be in a worse position than I went in. I would have lost my my accommodation. I'd lose my girlfriend. I'd lose I'd lose my job. I said, fucking hell, you might as well pay it. So I ended up paying them about two grand. And um, as sickening as it is getting parking offences and all that stuff. And now I just try to uh, just try to keep make sure keep aware of all these things that don't stress me out or whatever. Plus I've got into all like more personal development, like even just watching stuff I um, on YouTube, personal development stuff, Eric Thomas and Les Brown. And, uh, and, and now there's other people that I first started listening to them when I got out of the Nick and they would motivate me and, uh, and, and, and make me believe like, Oh yeah, if you want to go for your goals, you can, you can achieve anything and, and keep going for it. And then, and it's from watching all stuff like that. Then next thing I done an NLP, practitioner course i paid two grand to do that but i didn't care less i thought it's for help me to help me think better then if it's going to help me think better as to, to stay out of jail and don't be making the same mistakes that i did when i was younger then it's then it's money well spent and um and doing all the stuff like that personal development stuff I, I i qualified about nearly two years ago as a, a hypnotherapist and so um i got into that and um i, I was doing that and, and in september I'm going to do a firewalk instructor course. And so I'll be uh, teach, pe uh, to teach people how to walk across burning hot coal with barefooted or how to walk across uh, bro broken glass barefooted and, and, and breaking bricks with your hands. And, and just by using your focus and, and being focused and just to show that if you focus, what can, what can be done, you know? Because when I read about this firewalk uh, stuff that Anthony Robbins used to do, and when I read about it, when I was in the Nick, I thought to myself, wow, I'd love to do that. And then a couple of years went past or whatever, when I was out here, a few years went past. And next thing I see, I seen the opportunity. I seen it online, firewalk instructor. I thought, that's it, I've, I've got a goal. And it's, it's quite expensive. I think it's costing me about 1,500 quid, I think. And, uh, but I said, I don't care how much it costs. I said, I've got to do it. And even just for myself, I just want to do it just for myself. The same as the hypnotherapy and everything. First and foremost, I'm just doing it just for me, you know, to prove that I can do these things. And um, and but the firewalk thing will be something else, you know. That might that would change my whole mindset to, and and hopefully put me on another level again. And hopefully, to for the future to start teaching people how to do that. People that have got negative beliefs about themselves or thinking that they can't do this, they can't do that. Go or if I can get companies like businesses and start teaching them, look, and charging them, obviously, and you're going to charge them how to. Uh, it would, it, I, I think it would liven up a lot of staff that's in these companies. And, yeah. um, I've, I've done, I did a fire walk for the Stroke Association a few years back. I managed to get one little burn on my foot, but I did it. I raised 1,200 quid for the Stroke Association. Um, oh. 
And it's great, eh? It, it, it is mind over matter, though. That's what they teach you, and it's uh, it's a good thing to get into. So, so good luck with that. Just a little, a little, a little thing about what you mentioned there. You mentioned, you know, you used to go on these benders. You used to be out two or three days sessions. Is that probably because the money that you were making was was dirty money? You find it. I think a lot of people don't realise when you do robberies, it's you know the easy part's the robbery, which is what you said earlier. But it's it's actually spending the money's the hard part. No, spending the money isn't the hard part. No, that's not. Um, I'm, I you may have misunderstood me there. I, I was saying now, getting away, getting away from the robberies yeah. was the was the main thing. Like yeah, I said, uh, the robberies were easy to do. Yeah, but maybe they became easy for us to do because <clears throat> it's not because just because we've done the robberies, it's because the upbringing as well that I had, and like so, I was used to. It's like I was used to surveillance, kind of. Um, or anti-surveillance kind of, I had a, so I had an awareness, and um, like from just going around shoplifting and everything. I was even from the army cadets. I learned uh, anti-surveillance stuff. Uh, like if you was going over hills, don't walk over the brow of a hill. Just go down and stay in the valley and 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 this that and the other, you know. And so, so I had I had a bit of knowledge of the, of, of I was I was aware of these things. And 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 and. I suppose if you've been ducking and diving all your life, it's, it's like it becomes like second nature to you, and so, so um, that's why um, we was able to do so many of them and, and get away with it. Yeah. Even though on enough on enough time enough times we've seen the old bill following us, but um, for one reason or another, they they never caught us on a job, and they caught my brother Sean as they was about to rob that um, security van that was meant to turn up that day, and. Um, and they they arrested him. I was I was arrested while I was driving down the road with a girl that I know, and um and then that was half seven in the evening, and I was just arrested. Then so I was never caught with any firearms or anything like that. Or but that was that, you know. How's Sean doing now? Sean's doing great. Yeah, uh, his son got killed four years ago, and so uh, he's had to get over that. And deal with that, and uh, but he's in a good place to be dealing with it. Funnily enough, he was in he's in a gartry, uh, the therapeutic nick, uh, the therapeutic wing that was there, and he was in there. He was he he done three years on that wing, and um and they are unraveling him right from when he was a child, and probably whatever whatever they do on them therapeutic nicks or them therapeutic wings, helping them to to discover why they got involved in crime right from the beginning. And uh, so he, he's he's done a lot of that therapy, and it's and talking to him now, he like he's, he's just got a degree in criminology and social sciences, and he's now going for his honours. And uh, and and I take my hat off to him because I think it's amazing that he's been able to do all that. Because from what he's had to put up with, like going back into the nick after getting released seven years ago when I did eight years ago, he got released, and then to get to go back in again, do another lump of bird, and uh, then his son to get killed, and. And uh, and and it's not like he was educated. None of us done anything at school, and um, and we've only read a tour. He'd he'd only read a few books, and so uh, for him to get his degree and um, and and now to be going for his honor, going for his honors, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a miracle, mate. It's just, it's, just, it's brilliant. And like if you hear him now, the way he speaks, and um, he's, 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 he can put an argument together and and hold it and and come back to that come back to a certain point and 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 uh, and it's always positive every time that he rings me up it's always positive and uplifting and he, and he never he never gets off the phone without quoting some scripture you know and uh, and and it's good it's a blessing to see you know is the light at the end of the tunnel for Sean you know how long has he got left 
Yeah, well, he, his time is up. His, tar- his tariff was another, he got another eight-year tariff. Yeah. And he's done that now. So he's, uh, he's, he's doing well. And uh, hopefully he'll be out within the next year, you know? Fantastic. And I mean, that'll be a great achievement. You know, well done to both of you, really, for turning your lives around. And the boy, you know, you, you know, the boy who left school with, you know, with no interest and no qualifications and, and on a life of crime has turned his life around. And it's a success story for you, Vinny. And, um, you know, I, I applaud you for what you've done. Um, what message would you give to any youngsters watching this um, who are thinking or are involved already in, in a life of crime? For them, I would just say, um, getting involved in a life of crime, it's not worth getting involved in. Because where do you stop? You know, where do you stop? Are you going to stop when you kill someone? Are you go- or, or, or are you going to stop when you've end- ended up done 10 or 15 years in a nick for robbing banks or 20 years? Or go inside, a- go in jail for 20 years, 20 to 30 years for a life sentence for murder? Is that when you're going to stop? It's too late to stop then. You might as well, they might as well just stop. Don't even start. Because... All you have to, all out here, you're, you're living in Britain. Look, you've got access to everything over here. You've got access to, you can join, you can get to the college for free. You can do a, a fucking open university course. You can, you can do it all for free. You can't go to, you go to any, loads of other countries in the world. You can't get these things. So you've got the opportunity, a person's, everyone's got the opportunity over here to better themselves and, and get, and, and get, all they've got to do is get their head down and stick their head into the books. And, uh, and, and get themselves a degree. And within a few years, you'll, you'll have your degree. A few years are going to pass anyway, three, four or five years. I've just started my degree in criminology and it's going to take me five years part-time to do it. And I've kept on putting it off all these years, but Sean has persuaded me to go for it. And it's by seeing him getting his degree and, and it's encouraged me and motivated and, and inspired me to do it. And, uh, and so I'm going to go for it. And um, if I can go for it and Sean has gone for it, then... Uh, I met plenty of people in the nick with their head screwed on. And some of them I'd say, what the fuck are you doing in here? I said, you'd meet some guys that could make poems, they could write songs and everything. And you said, what are you doing in here, man? Because I know why I was in there. I wasn't able to get any money any other way, you know? So but when I see these people, maybe it's the same for loads of them. I know we, we all think, oh, we can't get no money any other way. I just want it quick. I knew where the money was. The money's in the bank. I'm going to go and rob the bank. But... Uh, at the end of the day, what is, it doesn't really bring happiness because for me, all it done is just end up go. You go out on the piss with it. You're taking drugs with it. You might be cheating on your missus because you've got more money. You're out spending more. People are hanging on to you because you've got money. You've got false friends. You got it's just a lot of negativity. You might as well just go to get yourself stuck in the books. That's what I would say to any of the youngsters: get your head stuck in the books. And do some courses, do some free, do and because you, you can be, and then become anything you want. You can get yourself a degree in bloody engineering, anything. If you get yourself a criminal record, you're going to get fucked for the rest of your days because it's going to be held against you. You can't get decent jobs. So that's what I would say to them: get them heads, get their heads stuck in a book, and 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 apply for this course, apply for that course, and save up the money and do what they can. You know, because time passes. Time passes quick before you know it. Look, I've been out of the next seven years and it's only now that I'm just going for a degree now. I get, and I've been saying for the last few years I'd love to get a degree. And my brother Sean, because he's done the therapy and all that kind of stuff, he said to me, what's holding you back, Finn? And all this stuff. And he's helped me to, uh, to, to find out more about myself. And so 
it's, it's brilliant. No, he's like the way I see it now. I said he's like the family counselor now, and I think sometimes there's a few of us in our family we need counselling with the things that's happening in our lives as well. You know, like the traumas, family dying. My brother Coleman died of cancer. Then my a year later, my my other brother died of in a car crash, and all this kind of stuff. And when that happens to you, you just go off the rails. You, but everyone in our family didn't turn to crime, but I was already involved uh, heavily in crimes doing these robberies. So I just carried on doing what I was doing. And um, it's just like, you just lost interest in life. So you're ruining your life. You're going on a downward spiral and it's only going to come to a stop. God knows where, you know, whether you're going to kill someone or someone's going to kill you and, uh, or, or you're going to end up doing life in prison or you're going to get killed and you're going to be down in a cemetery with the rest of them. So what are you going to do? You're gonna to have to fix up and just stay away from the negative people and um and just and and just go for your goals, you know. It's great advice, Vinny, and I think if uh, any kids are watching, they should listen. You know, listen to what you've got to say, and I think um you know you're a testament uh, you know to to what you're saying as well. But you've you've turned your life around, and you know me personally, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast uh, with such a positive message, and just want to wish you, Sean, and all your family all the very best, and good luck with your degree, mate. Okay, thanks a lot, Steve. It's been a pleasure doing the interview with you as well. I enjoyed it. Yeah, good luck with your book. And you, you have got, you're obviously, I know you've got, you're working with Noel Razor Smith. There's a book coming out um, at some point. I know there's been a little delay on that for, for legalities, which is often the case with those kind of books. There's another book you mentioned, which has got the Irish heritage. Which, which one's that that people can find online? That's a, a friend of a friend of mine, uh, Andy Nobloods, and uh, I've also been working on my own book over the last couple of years, but it's slowed down, and I um I want to get back into that. You know, I was hoping that when uh, Noel's book had come out uh, about what I'd got convicted of, that would I would have earned some money from that, and that would have inspired me more to 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 focus more on writing my own story. But that's been held up. So whatever happened, that's for whatever reason, that's um. I just look on the bright side and I look on the positive side. I say everything happens for a reason. And so I just got to continue with my own book and, and, and get it published. And uh, so people can see my life story and uh, how I've changed my life around and hopefully, um, and maybe make some more books from that, how to change people's lives around, you know, because that's what I'm going to be in lives around going to parties, like uh, showing people how to do this fire walking, going to business meetings or, or wherever, wherever I can get work doing that, teaching people how to walk across burning hot coal and, and, the, and the broken glass. That's what I intend to do for the future, to help people change their life around. Great stuff, mate. Well, thanks very much. Good luck with it. And I'm sure we'll speak again soon.